I'm glad I didn't badmouth you years ago. <laughs> My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> hey. Is that good? All right, good. Good. I'm so glad to be here. You know, when Gail asked me to come here and talk on Sunday, uh, my mind started to run. Uh, because I spoke at the Florida State Convention 32 years ago at the Diplomat Hotel in Fort Lauderdale. Is anybody here from that convention? Did any? <laughs> okay, good. We've got some people there. Things have changed, haven't they? I've changed. My hair's thinned out and my butt fell off. I don't know where it went. And I forget to pull my zipper up twice a week. <laughs> Other than that, I'm all right. I hope I don't make the signer do something they don't want to do. I don't. <laughs> and then the talk around the tables have changed a lot. Back then, people were talking about college and kids and business and families and all that. And now, if you listen, those same people are talking about Medicare, menopause, and Viagra. I wanted to see how you did Viagra is what I... <laughs> oh, goodness. Goodness gracious. You're a good group. I can tell that right now. Not many were offended that I know of. Uh, you know, this is really something. Uh, my sobriety date is October the 5th, 1978. And uh, I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous 44 years ago in April. And uh, I was a 22-year-old kid. I came off the streets. And uh, it never occurred to me that I was a part of something that was just wonderful. You know, I, uh, I, I look around and uh, I think we're here because of a conversation that happened at a kitchen table between Bill and Ebby. And the whole turning point for Bill was, you can come up with your own idea, God, your own concept of God. Bill said, I can do that? Well, Ebby did it. Maybe I can do it. This whole thing of Alcoholics Anonymous is based on a maybe. A maybe started Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a part here in uh, We Agnostics. I just love this. It says, we need to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, maybe, we emphatically ensure him he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that among this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Ah, on a maybe. There's no churches based on maybe. I've never heard of the Southern Church of Maybe, or the United Church of Maybe, or for you diehard Catholics, our perpetual lady of Maybe. You don't see anybody in church going, well, maybe something will happen, maybe it won't, I don't know. But here, people's lives can change on a maybe. And this thing's really neat. People, it's not like church. You know, people get spirituality and religion mixed up. A lot of uh, religious members come in and say, oh, they talk about God and spirituality and church and all that. And I go, yeah, I don't think it's the same. They go, what do you mean? I said, well, don't go by what I say. Five minutes before the service, lean over to a perfect stranger and say, you know, 
When I drink, I have a tendency to wet my pants and puke on the ones that I love. Does that happen to you? <laughs> You'll find out real quick if it's like AA. You'll be sitting in your own pew, they'll go, oh, oh, no, oh my, no, I, I don't do that. No, you'll just move on out. But hopefully anywhere in Alcoholics Anonymous around the world, they go, yeah, I, I, I sure have. I've got some friends I want you to meet. You want some coffee? You know, this spiritual way of living is completely different than anything I've ever run across, you know. Um, when I came to A, my, I, I, before I came to A, my mother had kicked me and my brother out of the house. My mother found Alcoholics Anonymous in 1971, and she's how I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, my brother and I, we, had, we, we were off the hook. We were 21 and 18, and we're coming home at 3, 4 in the morning. Uh, we lived in a little 700-square-foot house out in Cincinnati. And uh, I'd come, I'd, you know, drunks are hungry, they want to eat. I'd put a whole pa uh, pound of bacon in the skillet and turn the flame up on high and s smoke's rolling all over the house. And, you know, my mother's coming out and she's trying to maintain her sobriety and her peace of mind. And she's got two grown men in her house and uh, robbing her of her peace of mind. And she's going, you, Joe, you've got a problem with your drinking. I go, ah, oh, you're out of your mind, you know. Since you went to that A, you think everybody's got a problem with their drinking. You know, Dad's right. You're crazy. You know, just, and that's how I talked to my mother. That's how I treated my mother. That's how alcoholism made me act toward my own mother. And she kicked us out. And I got a sleeping room on Scott Street. I had a 71 Chevy pickup, an old ye yellow pickup truck. So I put all my belongings in it, in my trash can liners. I had colors, whites, and miscellaneous. And I put them in the back of the truck and headed down to No Hope, Kentucky on 15th and Scott. And I'm the only guy in the building under 65. I'm 21 years old. We have a bathroom on the second floor that we share. I've got a sink in my room, so you know what I use a sink for. It wasn't washing my face. I had a bare mattress on the floor for a bed and a cardboard box turned upside down for an end table. I had a light that hung from a wire on a ceiling. I had plastic curtains with grease on the blinds. I had a four-pane window, and one of the panes were broken out. And uh, I would come in drunk at night, and I'd flip that light on. And roaches don't like light. They will move. It's almost, and they just start scattering. It's like they're saying, look out, he puked on me last night. Oh. You know, and, and I'm laying on this bare mattress, and I'm looking up at this light. And uh, alcohol's still working for me, you know. And I, I'm looking at this mattress on the floor, and I'm like, God, look at this. And, Alcohol says, you hang in there. We'll get you real box springs and sheets one day. You just hang in there. I go, oh, all right. And I looked over at my end table, my box, where I put my room key and my sixth sense. And I go, a box? And alcoholism said, it's a member of the Wood family. Just hang in there. We'll get you a real end table one day. Oh, okay. I'd go out. And I'd, many times I'd go out and I'd come to and I'd, I'd have one of these doing this on my nose like that. So, uh, Everybody's got to have a place to live, you know, boom. <laughs> Alcohol was still working for me. It made an unacceptable situation completely acceptable. And uh, alcohol to the alcoholic doesn't look like the problem. At least it didn't for me. Powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable didn't look like alcohol to me. You know, I, I, I went down to Skid Row in September, it's October, November. There was a payphone across the street from the building I lived in. I put a dime in the phone. Okay, I'm getting old. I put a dime in the phone. 
And I picked up the phone and I heard a dial tone. And I listened to the dial tone for about 30 seconds. And I realized I don't have anybody to call. And I hung up and I got the dime and I put it back in my pocket. Sometimes powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable sounds like a dial tone. And then later that year, I, I, uh, it was Christmas of 76, I was in a bad car accident. I wasn't driving, but I was in the back. My feet were under the front seat, and we hit head on with another car. My feet stayed under the back seat, and my lips kissed the dash. And the bar on the back seat almost broke my shins. So I'm in the hospital, they gave me this big bottle of this high-powered codeine, and I go back to my sleeping room. I take a couple codeine and drink a fifth of Jack, and I did this on the 24th, and I woke up, and I'm walking down the street. It's 9 in the morning. I said, hey, Merry Christmas, kid. He said, that was yesterday, mister. I thought, ah, kid's messing with me. So I went and I looked at a newspaper stand, and it said, December 26th, 1976. And I thought, well, well, maybe next year. Sometimes alcohol doesn't look like powerless over alcohol. It looks like you just miss Christmas. In uh, January of 77, I had hitchhiked back to the other side of the river and went to a bar in a neighborhood that I grew up in as a kid to hustle drinks. I hadn't been able to hold a job. I'd lost my truck. It got towed away. I didn't have any money to get it. And uh, I went up to the bar where I used to drink as a younger guy. You know, you can hustle drinks. Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Let me get you a drink. I said, that's a good idea, man. Why don't you do that? And you could do that five or ten times, get a good buzz going. But the door closed. It's 2.30 in the morning. I had a Navy pea coat on with a shirt, bib overall, socks and shoes. No hat, no gloves. It was 25 below and the wind chill 70 below. The Ohio River froze that year. People walked across the Ohio River. They, people didn't want me in their car anymore because I was unpredictable. I didn't know when I was going to do bizarre and insane things. I'd be driving and all of a sudden I'd grab the wheel. <laughs> and the car would go all over the place. Hey, what are you doing? I say, hey, I'm just kidding around. you know. So they go, don't, don't put him in your car. Boy goes off. He doesn't know. He doesn't, he's not in his right mind. So the door closed and I walked about a mile and a half to another neighborhood and I stuck my thumb out and uh, somebody picked me up out of the kindness of their heart and we drove downtown and I, I remember looking up at the clock on the Carew Tower and it said uh, quarter to four and that guy shut the door, I shut the door on the car and he drove away and it was like the last human being on the planet had left me. Now it's 70 below wind chill factor. Nobody was out. Police weren't out. Firemen weren't out. Dogs were frozen to fire hydrants. Just, I mean, it was so cold. They said, if you can steal it, you can have it. <laughs> we're not going out there. And I, I huddled in the, the crew tower, and I thought, I've got to get over the river, and I've got to get up to 15th, which is like a mile and a half from where I'm at. I, if I don't go now, I, I, I might not make it. So I'm, I'm crossing the river, and the river's just, the wind's just howling. I mean, to this day, when it gets down to 20 degrees, the tips of my ears hurt, and my nose, and my fingertips. I think I damaged myself that night. But if you just stopped me in the middle of that bridge that night and said, hey, Joe, you think you have a problem with your drink? And I said, well, hell no, I don't have a problem with my drinking. I've got a transportation problem. The buses aren't running. 
But while you're out here, let me tell you what my problem is. My problem is that mother, she's crazy. You know, when she went to A, our family broke up, and everything was over from that point on. If she wouldn't have got sober, I'd have been a college graduate. No, my family broke up because she's nuts. It's because I, I have a GED and I never finished high school. It's because I got a job in a boiler room in the Navy. If I'd have had a job as a yeoman in an air-conditioned office, I might have been a 20-year career man. It's because of the girlfriend that kicked me out. It was anything under the sun but alcohol. Alcohol is the thing that let me ask the girls to dance at high school. I was so frozen with fear. I, I wouldn't ask anybody to dance. I had a couple quarts of beer. I'd dance with the guys. I didn't care. You know what I mean? So how can anything that makes you feel that good be the problem? Sometimes, powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable, just looks like the buses aren't running. That's all. But it doesn't look like alcohol. I came to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous through a spiritual awakening, April the 10th, 1977. And uh, I think that's pretty much where my story's going to start. I, uh, I knew I had to go where my mother went. I thought she was crazy, but she was pretty crazy now. She used to... Uh, she was about this tall, and she weighed 190 pounds. She was always drinking Carling Black Label and eating Black Mollies. She didn't, I mean, it, it looked, she looked like she was ready to run a race or pass out. I mean, I know, just, just all the time, you know, just, and uh, she suffered horribly, you know. It was an embarrassment to us because she looked nuts, you know, and, uh, but after she got sober, we remembered the change in her. She lost all that weight. She started wearing makeup and fixing her hair. Now, this is the 70s. She started wearing mini skirts with white go-go boots. And I thought to myself, she might be crazy, but she's pretty crazy. Something's happening. So I went to where my mother went. And I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, coming off of Skid Row, I had no job, no money, no car, no education. And uh, my hair's out to here. I used to have one of those big afros, Steve, where you turn your head and the hair would catch up to it, you know. <laughs> and uh, I had bib overalls on. And that was it. <laughs> no shirt, no underwear, no socks, and a pair of old worn-out earth shoes. And I'm, I'm at my first meeting Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sitting in the front row. Now, I didn't know what A was. And uh, the guy sitting next to me, he was old. For God's sakes, he was 50. And uh, the sclera, the white part of his eye, had grown over the rest of his eye. I said, what happened to your eye? And he said, well, my wife had gotten so frustrated through 20 years of drinking, she waited for me to pass out on the couch. And when I did, she poured sulfuric acid in my eye. I went, damn. <laughs> This is my first meeting of AA. What have I got myself into here? And then the woman sitting next to him, she was old. She was 40. And she was a self-proclaimed psychic. You know, I'm, I'm sure she probably said, I know where your underwear is at. <laughs> and the, the guy sitting next to her had a PhD in history. He was the historian for the Delta Queen Riverboats. And then the guy to my right, who ended up being my sponsor, was a, a certified welder at Interlake Steel. And the guy next to him was his sponsor. He was the top guy at P&G for computers and uh, the accounting department. He was the top dude. And the guy giving the talk that day, Don M., 
His nose was kind of off to the side like that. And as I listened to his story, I found out why. Some guy got mad at him and broke his nose with a tire iron. Now, Don had done five years in Eddyville Maximum Security Prison in Kentucky. And uh, he's talked about getting drunk and the guy breaking his nose. He said, when I got out of the hospital, I went and found that guy. And I tied him to the railroad track and waited for the train. I thought, what the hell have I got myself into here? (laughs) Now, I'm not thinking about anything about what they're thinking of. The guy with one eye is going, where's your underwear? (laughs) And the guy with the nose off the side said, at least I got a shirt, pal, you know. But the guy that day, he talked about getting a sponsor. And I didn't know what a sponsor was. It's my first day of A. What do I know? What's a sponsor? I thought, I might not have underwear, but I am getting a sponsor. I'm going to walk out of here with a sponsor. So I turned to the guy next to me. I said, hey, will you be my sponsor? And he said, yeah. And he was my sponsor all the way up to the day he died three years ago. And people say, how do you pick a sponsor? I said, well, just ask somebody. Anybody. I didn't pick him because he was spiritual or did the steps or read the book. I picked him because I was stupid. (laughs) I didn't know any better. I think, well, this guy's good as any. And he, he talked to me that day and he said... He told me what he did to stay sober. And uh, he says, I have taken the steps. I have a home group. He said, we, we take, my group takes meetings into institutions like uh, the workhouse and Roman's Mental Institution and Longview State Hospital and stuff like that. And, uh, and, he, and he had this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm sitting at a table and he gently slides it over to me and he says, I read this and try to do what it says to do. You might want to try it. He didn't say, I'm going to take you through the book. and we're going to... You don't do that to people who don't have underwear on. You don't talk to them like that. <laughs> you lay the kid out, spiritual kid out for their inspection and let them look at it. You don't drag them through nothing. And I looked at the book and I thought, well, there's not one picture in this book. This is stupid. <laughs> Obviously, this guy's nice, but he doesn't know what I need. I mean, I know I need underwear and a job and... I, you know, he's giving me a book that doesn't have pictures in it. You're a nice guy, but I never really thought much about it. And I stayed around AA for 89 days the first time I came to AA. And uh, on the 89th day, I came up with a brilliant idea. I went to my sponsor. I said, you know, I don't think I had a problem with weed, Mike. Uh, what do you think about that? He said, well, if you haven't had a problem with it, I suggest you smoke it. And I thought, I've got the best sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I've got a weed-promoting, smoking sponsor here. He knew I was not going to not smoke weed because somebody said, don't you do that. Don't do that. He, had, he knew I had to find out through my own experience. And uh, I was a daily pot smoker from 13 to 23. And that had been the first time since I'd not smoked pot in all that time. So I went and smoked some pot. He said, go do it. So I went and did it. And I used to get so upset when people would get paranoid on pot. You know what I mean? It's like, would you get out from under that table? What's wrong with you? This is pot. What the hell are you doing? Now I'm the guy under the table. It's not good, man. It's not good. I must have got a hold of some bad weed. It's not good. And what do you do when you get a hold of bad weed? You got to get alcohol to calm down. Alcohol is the answer for everything for the alcoholic, even bad weed. And I went back to A after a couple of days, and I, the, the wonder and the, the good feeling about the spiritual awakening that got me to A was gone. And I felt like I'd let A down. I felt like I'd let my sponsor down. And 
He was there when I came back. I said, Mike, will you still be my sponsor? He said, well, yeah, why wouldn't I? He said, what did you learn? I said, well, I didn't understand the question. I mean, what do you mean what I learned, you know? And I came back. I stayed sober four months the next time. Got drunk like I'd never been to A. This is what really got me. I stayed sober five months the next time. Went to a meeting every day. Prayed every day. Chaired the meeting on the fifth month. Walked out of the meeting that I chaired. It was a beautiful day out. Not a problem in the world. And my alcoholic mind goes, you're over the hump. You passed that four-month mark. You're five months sober. And I, about 20 minutes later, I'm walking down the street, and my head said, you know, a bottle of MD-2020 would go really good right now. And my head said, you're a big boy, go get it. So I went and got it. But I'm halfway through this bottle, I'm starting to get this warm glow, and I thought, you're out of your mind. You've just been to five months of meeting. You chaired a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're drinking like you've never been to AA. You must be one of those people who are constitutionally incapable, I hear them talking about all the time. And uh, I went through a hospital for alcoholism after that, and uh, I was in there for three weeks. And my first day, I'm in there with this guy, and he was old, he was 60. And uh, I was 23 by now, and uh, God, he stunk. Oh my God, did he stink. It, it smelled like formaldehyde, you know, the, the smell of booze coming out of your pores. And uh, my, my, my sheets stunk, my, my hospital gown stunk. It's like, oh my God, maybe I ought to try to get another room. Just, oh, terrible. And the next day, he was gone. I said, what happened to so-and-so? They said, he died last night. I said, thank God, man. This place was stinking bad. I mean, I was about ready to ask for another room. It never occurred to me. I'm in the room for the same reason that guy is, and I'm dying too. Sometimes powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable, just smells like stinky sheets. Doesn't look like alcohol. You know, matter of fact, I think, I think drug addicts have an unfair advantage on alcoholics. I do. I, they know what their problem is. Ask, ask any respecting heroin addict, what's your problem? They'll go, heroin. <laughs> you ask any, well, there's no self-respecting crackheads. If you ask, <laughs> if you ask a crackhead what his problem is, he knows what his problem is. It's his goddamn pipe. If I could get this pipe off my lip, I could be somebody. I'm smoking drywall. I'm smoking rice. I'm smoking lint. I'm smoking anything that's white. If I could get this pipe out of my mouth, I'd be somebody. You ask any alcoholic what their problem is, they go, I just need a job. I mean, really, if, if I could get money, I'd get out of this place I'm in, and I'd get back on my feet again. And, uh, and I, li I, I like it when... When people come day and they go, well, you know, it's all the same. I go, well, I know it looks all the same when you're new, but it's really not all the same. Close but no cigar. I said, look at our book and take alcohol out and put crack in. It sounds weird. Despite all we can say, many who are real crackheads are not going to believe that they are in that class. <laughs> By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule. Therefore, not a crackhead. If anyone who's showing the inability to control his crack smoking can do the right about face and smoke crack like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. 
Heaven knows we've tried long enough and hard enough to smoke crack like other people. <laughs> I hate to tell you, there's no other people. <laughs> I'm telling you. I, I know, it's, nobody's going, I really wish I could smoke crack like Bob, you know. Just take two hits off to the, of the pipe and go home to Sally and the kids, you know. Not the same, not the same. They have an unfair advantage. They can see what their problem is. Me, I'm blind to it. It, it looks like I missed the bus. You know what I mean? It, it, look, it smells like stinky sheets. It looks like a lot of things, but it doesn't look like alcohol. That's alcoholism to the alcoholic. When they say the problem centers in their mind, they really mean that. Um, you know, this thing about honesty in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not, it's not cash register honesty, it's spiritual honesty, and there's a big difference. I know a guy that did five times in a penitentiary, and every time he was drinking. Every time. And on the fifth time when he got out, he got drunk, and he was going up Columbia Parkway in Cincinnati and bounced off the wall, and he goes, oh, my God, I almost killed myself. I've got a drinking problem. I've got to, I've got to do something about my drinking. Now, was he lying to himself about those other five times in prison? Nah. He couldn't see it. It was like stinky sheets. It was like missing the bus. And spiritual honesty means I became aware of something that I was not aware of before. I wasn't lying to hide from it. My form of dishonesty is I can't see the truth. You know, uh, morality is I stole your wallet and I really need to give it back to you. In alcoholism, it's I had no clue it was alcohol. I really thought it was her. I really thought it was the job. I thought it was the bus. I thought it was the stinky bed sheets. I, I, I just didn't know. And I'm going to AA and I couldn't see that. And uh, I came back on April the 10th, or uh, October the 5th, 1977. And that is my sobriety date. It's been my sobriety date up till now. And I knew I wasn't going to stay sober. I mean, I'd been in and out AA 20, 30 times. I knew all that crap, the promises, steps, ah, how it works. That's for you people. I'm, I'm one of those people this stuff doesn't work for. I'd sit there and look at guys with a big shiny diamond ring sitting in their meeting, smoking their big cigar, and they'd have their Cadillac outside. And I'd think, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you don't know what it's like to live out there in that concrete jungle. You got your nice Cadillac. You got your nice car with your diamond ring on. You got your honey on your arm with the house out in the suburb. You don't know me. That's where my mind was. I had no clue why I'm in AA. And I came back this last time, and I thought, I'm going to let my head clear up. It usually takes a couple of weeks for my head to clear up, and I come up with a new game plan. I'm going to get out of here. You people are nice, but I'm not like you. And something happened. I surrendered. And I know our book says we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery, but I'm here to tell you, for this alcoholic, that's not a mental proposition. That's a spiritual internal shift. You know, I didn't get up that day and go, well, today looks like a good day to surrender. I think I'll just check into Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 100% sure I was not going to stay sober. And my sponsor, uh, he'd watched me go in and out of AA, and he came up to me after the meeting. He says, look, I'm not a taxi service. I'm not coming to pick you up. You didn't need anybody to pick you up to go drink. You get yourself to the meeting, I'll make sure you get home. If you want it, you come get it. I said, okay, Mike. And uh, about the third day sober, I had gotten on the other side of the river in those dry periods. And uh, I was living in Norwood. 
Same thing. Everybody in the building's over 65 but me. We're all using the same bathtub. It's all furnished. I didn't own anything but my cigarettes, my lighter, and my clothes. I, I didn't have anything. And he calls my landlord. She's the only one that had the phone. This is 1978. And she yells down the hall, Hey, Joe! There's this guy from Alcoholics Anonymous wants to talk to you on the phone. I went, oh my God, they know I'm an alcoholic now. <laughs> they just watched me bounce off the walls night after night. Like, don't tell anybody I'm not bouncing off the walls anymore. And I, I, I got on the phone. I said, Mike, don't do that. He said, do what? I said, don't tell him you're from A for God's sakes. He said, well, you are, aren't you? I said, yeah, but don't do that. I said, what do you want? I'm three days sober. I'm kind of fried. I've got that Charles Manson look. Hair's out to here. What do you want? He says, I need somebody to talk down at the workhouse for me tonight. But before I could say anything, he says, you don't have to if you don't want to. But if you do it, do it because it's going to keep you sober. I said, what am I going to tell him, Mike? For God's sakes, I'm three days sober. He said, why don't you tell him what it's like to be sober three days? I said, okay. And I clicked. And I went, oh, that was dumb, dumb, <laughs> dumb. So I had about a buck and a quarter to my name, and I used... Uh, 65 cents to get on the bus. It's, it's October. It's still warm out. And um, it's just me and the bus driver on the bus because this is the last run. He's going back to the barn, you know. And I'm on the back of the bus. And I remember like it was yesterday. I could smell the diesel fumes. And I'm listening to the, the, the motor going, and you've got to remember, hair's out to here. I'm kind of wild looking. And the bus driver's looking at me in the mirror. And I thought, what are you looking at? And it occurred to me, I'm the only one to look at. There's nobody else on the bus, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? You're going to meet a guy you don't like. To talk to a group of people that you don't know. And to tell them what it's like to be sober three days. Oh, you have lost your better judgment. You're, you have lost your mind. And I went in there and I spoke about five or ten minutes and talked to some guys in there. And we walked out and he said, see, that helped you stay sober, didn't I? I thought, you're dumber than I thought. There's not a beer in that place. This, and the whole day didn't make sense to me at all. But when I look back at that young man, I was willing to do what I needed to do to stay sober, even if it didn't make any sense. I'm sober 10 days, and I got to the meeting, and my sponsor's standing up there by the podium. I wanted to check him, see if he really meant what he said. Got to the meeting, Mike. Give me a ride home. And he said, sure. And Mike was cool, man. Mike was nine months older than me. Yeah. He had a, a 72 Nova, an orange 72 Nova with mag wheels, <laughs> an eight track, and air condition. I went, damn. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm 10 days sober. And I'm sitting in his car, and he goes to put his keys in the ignition. And before he turns the ignition, he looks at me and he says, I need to tell you something. I said, well, what do you need to tell me? He said, I need to tell you as your sponsor that if you make staying sober and being an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous above anything else, you will never have to worry about money. You will never have to worry about a job. You'll never have to worry about relationships, Joe. They'll all be taken care of for you. I promise you. And in a five-second window, that kind of went into my consciousness, and my brain went, boom. And I said, come on, man, we got to get out of here. My landlord don't want me running the washer and dryer after 8 o'clock. I've got some laundry to do. It was fleeting, but it was shot into my consciousness. Uh, 
three, day, three weeks sober, a guy walked up to me in AA and gave, gave me a job. And a job was in the boiler room in the projects. Laurel Homes in Lincoln Court down in Cincinnati. And there was like 47 different high-rise buildings. And we supplied the steam and, and uh, hot water to all these different buildings. And I was reading, uh, I was starting to read the big book at that time. And uh, <laughs> I, I read this the day he gave me the job. Now, you have to remember, my brain's 21 days sober, 28 days sober. I'm fried, and I don't know I'm fried. And I'm reading this, and, and here, it's about the third step. But it says, when we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work while I went, how did they know I was going to have a new employer? Wow. Wow. And you laugh, but I, every time I tell that story, the hair on my arm goes up to this day. And God knew what I understood. I went, well, I didn't know they were talking about God. I thought, that, this is good stuff. I'm going to have to keep reading this. So I got to about 30 days sober, and I was, gonna, I, I was getting ready to drink. I had that feeling. I know what getting ready to drink feels like. And I went to Mike. I said, Mike, what did you do when you got like that? He says, I wrote that inventory. You've been reading that book? I said, yeah, but I don't, I don't understand it. I read a paragraph. Now, my brain's like Swiss cheese. The bottom of it has holes. I'll read a paragraph, and it just goes away, and i got to keep rereading the paragraph. I, I read it. I can pronounce the words, but... Like ideas won't go in. And uh, he made writing the inventory as simple as a walk in the park. And he was my big book. And uh, he's the thing that made my big book come alive. He never took me through the book. He mirrored me. The more I would read it, the more he'd go along with me. When I back off, he'd back off. He never forced himself on me. And I, I wrote the inventory, and I thought, well, I don't believe this crap will work. I... It's 12 sentences on a piece of paper. I have real problems, all right? What are, what are 12 sentences on words going to do? And I wrote the inventory. I thought, this guy needs me to stay sober like he said he does. I'm going to tell him the truth. Listen to this. I bet you've never heard of this. And I just started writing. And I went and read my inventory to him. And I got done reading it. And he says, well, can you see where you're at fault or any of that? I go, well, no. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I didn't know what you meant by that. I couldn't see that. And what he did for me is he shared his life with me. He shared with me how he found out he was selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and afraid. And I went, I'll be damned. I said, do you think that that's where I'm at fault? He goes, I don't know. It's your inventory. He would never give me the answer. And I remember reading the sex inventory. Oh, my God. It was unbelievable. I thought I was a pervert and immoral and way off. I mean, I was a little bizarre, but... I went and read the inventory, and I went, well, Michael, um, I did it with a buffalo. And he was smoking at that time. He goes, where were you at fault? I lied to the buffalo. What was the lie? I love you. That was the lie. And everybody laughs. But you have a buffalo. Everybody I know has a buffalo. I've listened to a few hundred fifth steps since I've been sober. I come to find out I was pretty much a lightweight. I've heard stuff where I thought, if I ever drink again, I'm trying that. That is good stuff. 
That's good stuff right there, man. I like that. And uh, I went back to my room at 30 Days Sober, and I reflected how I just embarrassed myself in front of another human being. How could you have done that? You know, it talks about rereading the first five proposals. All I could think of, what you told him about the buffalo, you dummy? What'd you tell him for? I told him everything. And then the seventh step, I know what the seventh step prayer said, but at that time, my mind just saw it as, well, if there's a God there, it says here, help me. And that isn't what the prayer said at all. But I got to believe back then, God's just sitting there chilling, going, I know you don't understand the prayer. I just wanted to hear you ask. I'll take care of you from here. You just keep going on and making those amends like Mike did. And that's what I did, and my life started to change. At two months sober, I had a, a spiritual awakening that blew my mind. I was two months sober. I'd just come out of this building down the projects. Now, where I was working, that was a pretty rough place, man. A week before that, they had slaughtered a goat in the basement. I found the goat alive, and I went and got my boss. Came back, there was a rope swinging and blood all over the floor. They had slaughtered it. A couple days before that, an 82-year-old woman got shot and killed for six bucks. I mean, and people were throwing garbage out the windows. It's just the way, you know. And I come up out of this, this building, and it's, it's like 3 or 4 in the morning. I remember it was April the 10th, and the, the snow was coming down real, real slow. And I thought, wow, look at this. This is beautiful. And I became aware of the fact that I'm okay. I'm okay at 4 in the morning in the ghetto. And I realized... I hadn't established my position in society yet. I hadn't established my education level or my profession. I had a lot of people to make amends to yet. There were relationships that were ruined that were never going to be straightened out, and there were other ones that were going to take a long time. But that day, at four in the morning in the ghetto, how I felt inside was, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how it turns out. I'm okay right now I feel I'm, I wanted to start knocking on doors going you know how nice it is out here and I got no you'll get shot you better calm down <laughs> and the next day I went and talked to my sponsor I said Mike you've watched me go in and out of AA a lot have I lost my mind is what I'm telling you make any sense he goes yeah he said it makes a lot of sense Joe he says you're free I said I am he said yeah you're free. He said, that's what the steps do for the alcoholic. They remove the obsession and they render the sufferer happy, whole, and useful. You can stay like that. I said, I can. He said, yeah. And he said, matter of fact, you're so free. If you want to start a business, go start a business. You want to go to college, go to college. If the right woman comes along in your life and you want to get married, by all means, get married. A comes first. A comes first above everything else. You think you can do that? I go, well, yeah, I've been doing it for two months. <laughs> he said, you'll be just fine. And I took him literally. It was, I was like a kid. I was like a spiritual sponge. You know, it's like, Daddy said I can do anything. I'm doing anything. I got married at two years sober. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, we've been together in a few weeks. Been married 41 years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We lived together for a year in sin before that. It was wonderful. Mm, 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 mm. Some things you just can't forget.
Uh, I was sober about two and a half years and learned how to fly a plane. I got a pilot's license. People said, what are you doing that? I said, my sponsor said I could do anything I wanted. What, what did yours tell you? Call them every day at five? <laughs> you got screwed. <laughs> was sober about oh, five, six years. My wife had a little baby. And uh, we named him after my first sponsor, Mike, ex-bedwetter. And uh, a year later, on the same day, they both had the same birthday, a year apart, November 20th, 83 and 84, she did it again. And uh, we named him after his sponsor, Bob, a guy that was a psych ward graduate. But these men meant so much to us because they helped me walk back into reality again. They helped me put my life back together. You know that first inventory I did? It wasn't about the columns. It wasn't about finding out where I'm selfish, dishonest. Yeah, yeah, that was an eye-opener that it was me. But you know what got me the most on that first inventory? And I wrote a few after that because my mind kept clearing up. The next day when I saw him, he wanted me to be with him. He said, hey, we're we're going to this meeting. We're going out to eat at you, you still want me to be with you after me telling you what I told you last night? He said, well, yeah, come on, man. That touched me. That touched me in a way that I haven't been touched since I was a kid. I love my parents, but I didn't trust either one of them. They were really sick from alcoholism. They were always being pushed around by an obsession to drink. What they said and what, what they said and did never matched up. And here was a guy that saw all of me. Seven days later, he still wanted to be around me. You know what that did to me? And he gained my trust. He never laughed at me. He never called me names. He never judged me. He just loved me and shared his life with me. And from that day on, there was a part of me that says, I'm going to give this guy 100% right to tell me anything he wants, and I know it's not going to hurt me. And I've never done that with anybody in my life, ever. Uh, and how do you, how, what, what do you want me to talk about? You're 41, you're 38, you're 22. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in my spot. How the hell are you going to tell people what's happened in the last 32 years? But I do have some things in my mind that I do want to share with you that's different about me. At 29 years sober, I had a profound spiritual awakening. And Debbie M. gave a talk at Oak Street that just blew my mind. Solid, solid A talk. And she had an awakening at 29 years sober. These are things I didn't know about myself. And what I'm trying to say is there are some things that you're just not going to see on an inventory. There are some things in my life that were so deeply embedded in me, it was in the basic operating system of who I am, and it never got to here. But I'm operating off that, that I, which I can't see. And uh, I remember taking my, our oldest son in 98 to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Central Africa. And each day we're climbing at the end of the climb, everybody would sit around a campfire and they'd talk about, what do you do for a living? Well, there's two guys who are PhDs from telecom out of Sweden, and here's an Austrian political science professor from Austria and his daughter, Christina. She's teaching English or German in England. There's two German soldiers, and they get around to me and they go, what do you do? I go, well, I, I just boil water. 
You know, I'm a licensed stationary engineer. You know, you turn water into steam, things happen. I just boil water. And uh, it never occurred to me I'm on the same mountain as they are. You could hear how I'm presenting myself. Back in 07, I'm paddling a boat down the Peruvian Amazon. And the same thing happens. Guy in the back, all the way in the back, goes, hey, what do you do for a living? He goes, I've got my own construction company out of Oakland, California. And the guy behind me says, yeah, I've got my own tech company. I live in Vermont. And they go, what do you do? I'm still boiling water, boys. I'm just still boiling water. And I had this awakening in 07 that let me see the totality of my life. It was like looking at the tapestry of your life and every little thread was every little thing that you ever said, did, and felt. And I saw that I had approached the world for the first 29 years of my sobriety as GED Joe. I never knew I was doing that. And that day when I had that awakening, I saw every argument, every, every time I tried to be right, trying to defend what I did, just, I, I saw it all. But then I also saw who I was. And you had already seen it before I did. Because I was looking at the world from the inside out, and you're looking at me from the outside in. What I saw blew my mind. And this is what I saw. I'm a happy, respected member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm one of God's kids. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a homeowner. I'm a respected member of my community. I'm a licensed stationary engineer in the state of Ohio. I'm a licensed pilot. I'm a world traveler. That's right, I said it. (laughs) And a pretty good speaker, if I say so myself. (laughs) The thing about the GED when I had the awakening was I found out it didn't have anything to do with the GED at all. Alcoholism just caused me to feel poorly about myself, and my ego was always looking for a why, so it grabbed onto the GED. Joke's on me, it never was the GED. But that changed something in me, and I I think that's what I'm going to talk about the last 10, 15 minutes here. What it changed in me was I had a relationship with my mother that was really strained, and I was embarrassed about it. You know, I, I just didn't get along with my mother well. I, I, I burned more pencils and paper up with inventories. I've, I've, talk, I, I talk, I've talked out on it. And at 52 years old, I go, well, I guess this is as good as it's going to get. And I don't know why I am the way I am around my mother. I don't know. And uh, I would go see my mother out of guilt three times a year. I could stay 30 minutes and little ticks and idiosyncrasy would just make my teeth grind. But I'll see you later, Mom. I've got to get out of here. And I'd come home so disturbed, my wife would say, you've been to see your mother, haven't you? I'd go, what do you mean by that? I said, oh, God, yeah. I said, is it that obvious? She says, yeah, Joe, you really shouldn't go over there. It's, it, it's not good for you. And the guilt was, is here's the woman that led me to Alcoholics Anonymous, you see. Well, after that spiritual awakening, I went to visit my mother in the rest home with my wife. And she observed me talking with my mother like my mother, and she talked to me like, my, like her son. And she observed me talking to my mother with dignity and respect. And she walked out, and she says, I've never seen you talk to your mother like that. I says, I never have. 
I said, something's happened inside of me. And for the last 11 years she was alive, I went to visit her at the rest home. Now, my mother was one that went 1, 2, 3, 12 for the totality of her sobriety. And on one visit, I'm sitting there, and she looks at me, and she goes, you're happy, joyous, and free almost all the time, aren't you? I said, well, yeah, most of the time. You know, there are days where I insist on being a jerk, but for the most part, yeah. And she said this. She said, I've reached out and touched happy, joyous, and free a few times since 71 but you're like that all the time. And I realized it was her way of telling me that she knew that she was the way she was. But she also saw the man that I had become. And in that conversation, I said, you know, Mom, you always talked about how you had to kick me and my brother out and divorce Dad and all that. I said, I've never heard you talk about how your drinking affects your children and your marriage. She stopped and she thought a second. She goes, well, I didn't go to A for that. I went to A because I didn't want to be crazy like my mother. Her mother lived in a state mental institution for 40 years, and I thought, oh, she can't see, just like I couldn't see what powerless over alcohol life unmanageable looks like. And I thought, I'm not going to ask that question anymore. That would be cruel and unfair. And I never brought it up again. But I, I don't think my wife could tell when I went to see my mother after that because I was not upset anymore, and I can't tell you what that is. I don't know what that was. Uh, people have come up and tried to tell me what it is, but I, I, really, I really don't know. <laughs> and the other thing, too, is, you know, I'm, I've always been a ferocious giver. Couldn't receive worth a darn. My kids would want to throw me a birthday party. I'd throw birthday parties for them and my wife and... and what do you want for your birthday? Ah, just another day. I, nothing. It's like I would emotionally stiff arm them. Um, and after that awakening, some, one of the greatest gifts that's ever happened to me happened to me. And it happened for me. Is I was able to receive love. And that might not sound like anything to you. But I asked my sons after that change, I said, how did you perceive that? When I, I wouldn't let you give to me, they said, what well, seemed to us, you didn't want to have anything to do with us. I thought, oh, that wasn't what it, all, what it was at all. And now um, when somebody pays me a compliment or they want to hug me or say something nice about me, I go, that is so kind. Thank you. You're so sweet. Thank you so much. I'm able to receive people's affection and love instead of stiff-arming them. And I know St. Francis is highly regarded in AA, but I don't buy that. It's better to give than to receive. Oh, no. It's better to give and receive. It's better to love than to be loved. No, 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 no. It's better to love and be loved. There is an ebb and flow to life, and the defect of character is stopping that. Stopping it from letting people give you what they want to give you, to share with you what they want to share with you. I... Uh, you know, we talk about the pause in AA. You know, when agitated, we pause and ask for the right. They always talk about it in directions. They don't talk about it in experience. And I wanted to give you a few experiences about pausing. A few years ago, I was in a, a convenient gas station, and I pulled in to get some gas. And this el woman, I guess she was in her 50s, weather-worn, really weather-worn, looked bad. And these two guys, about 18, 19, I assume they were her sons, popped out of the back of this pickup truck. And I'm standing there in line, and one of her sons is in front of me. 
And he turns around and goes, back up, you're in my space. And I sat there and looked at him for a second and I thought, yeah, I don't look at it like that, son. I'm just standing here waiting to pay for my gas. And he went, oh. And he turned around. And his mother went. And his brother went. And I realized she'd been chasing that little bugger since the time he was that big. Everybody was in his space. McDonald's, the zoo, school. You're in my space. Oh, I got to go get him again, you know. And I, got in my, I was getting in my car and his brother said, thanks, man. Thanks for doing it. I said, look, I was just getting gas. And I realized that I didn't react to his reality. But because I was calm, he reacted to mine. And I rode up the road and I was pleased with myself. And this is what I realized. We don't pause because it's the right thing to do. We pause because the power is in the pause. God is in the pause. And that's where the answers come from. On any other given day, I said, I'll give you some space. You know, but in all reality, the guy probably could have kicked my ass. He's 18. I'm 66. Come on. But you know what I'm saying. Uh, about uh, oh, four years ago, I retired. And um, my wife had some heart problems. I hope you don't mind me talking about this. But uh, she'd had five heart attacks, 19 angioplasties, four stents, and brachyradiation on her heart. And I was 62 years old, and I was thinking one day, I said, you know, I worked a lot of hours. We spent a lot of time at AA. I, I would not be able to forgive myself if I chose my job over my wife. Because I could retire now at 62. It's not going to change my financial destiny if I work another three years. I'd never be able to forgive myself. So I retired. And uh, to spend an extra day a week with uh, the girl I lived in sin with for a year. Loved it. A few months later, she had heart attack number six, and she ended up having open-heart surgery. And the week before the surgery, I was sitting on a couch with her, and I said, Look, uh, don't die on me. God damn it, don't die on me. You're the only woman I've ever loved. You taught me what family was like. I came from a family where I didn't learn anything what family was like. I learned what alcoholism was like. You taught me what love was. You taught me what give and take. You taught me what family was about. I don't have time or energy to devote to another relationship. If you're gone, there won't be any other. I don't want another. Don't die on me. And she says, I won't. The next day, we're sitting on the couch, and I had time to pause a little bit. And I said, you know what we were talking about yesterday? And she said, yeah. I said, well, I think I was taking all this too personal. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I realized that had I never met you, you'd have had six heart attacks, 19 angioplasties, four stents, and brachyradiation, and I'd have been totally unaffected. But because I love you, and you taught me how to live, I'm taking it personal. I said, I'm okay if you die. And she looked at me and she said, I'm okay if I die too. And we let go of it together. I didn't know you could let go of things together with people that you love. It was a wonderful thing. She had uh, uh, the surgery, and she's been doing fine the last four years. People say, how's your wife? I, go, I don't know. I don't know where the hell she's at. She's out somewhere, you know. She's... 
<laughs> and then uh, my oldest son got sober in AA in 2015. But he stopped going to AA and started to have problems sleeping. And he was living with us. He, we lived with us. We helped raise our granddaughter for about 12 years. And uh, he got hooked on Xanax. And he was so looped on Xanax, he's standing in the kitchen like this, couldn't find the door on the microwave oven. I said, look, I grew up like this. I'm not going to have this in my house. I've worked so hard to keep a sane and safe environment, and I'm not going to put up with this. You're going to have to get out of here. And my problem was I was worried about what am I going to do with the granddaughter, you know. And uh, he stopped everything. And three days later, he's in the basement. He's defecating all over the place. He's hallucinating talking to people that aren't there and we had to call him and put him in the emergency room in the hospital and uh, they put him into a fentanyl induced coma for a week to get him off his Xanax he had mittens on he was in a coma for a week and uh, I went to see him after he got out of there he went to a spin dry place to get the rest of the stuff out of him before he went to the halfway house I says I don't know who the hell you are I said I had to change all the locks on my house I got to get rid of all our checks I says, I don't know who you are, and I don't trust you. And I'm watching you die, but you're not going to die in my house, son. You're going to have to die somewhere else. And uh, he went to the prospect house, and that's a halfway house for men. And uh, I told my wife, I said, look, you're a mother and a member of Al-Anon. I'm a man and a member of AA. You handle it your way, I'll handle it my way. And that's what we did, and I waited 30 days to go see him. Let him get the cobwebs out. I know all about cobwebs. And I went over and we were talking. He looked good, put on some weight. His eyes were clear. He was talking good. And uh, he said, I went to court today and I lost custody of my daughter. I've got temporary permanent custody. But if four months from now, I can go back and revisit this in the court. And if I can live with you and mom on the weekends, I could get custody back. And I paused for a minute. And I said, you can never live at my house the rest of your life. And he said, why? I said, because I love myself enough not to put myself in a position where I'm threatening to leave my own home like I was a month before you came in here. And I love you enough not to interfere with the path that God has you on. He said, okay. How do you argue with love? I've never heard anybody say that before, but I've got to believe the pause gave me the words. The power's in the pause. He was in there for two years. He lived there two years and put his life back together. Got an apartment not long ago, close to where we live, so we can have communication with the granddaughter. And this was back in January. And he's been sober three and a half years now. <clears throat> so he said, I want to show you my apartment. So I went over there. And he showed me really nice, you know, nice. And before I left, he says, here, I've got something I want to give you. He said, this is the key to my apartment. When I'm out of town working, would you come over and check and see if everything's okay? I said, yeah, I'll do that. And I put it in my pocket, and the next day I went over to his apartment with our, our key. And I said, will you do me a favor? When I'm out of town with your mother, will you come over and look at our house and make sure everything's okay? And he goes, yeah. And the relationship was healed that day. It's better to give and receive. Don't ever tell, let anybody tell you that giving is better than receiving. They are of equal value. Um, I'm going to close talking about the path.
you know, uh, drunks like to study things. And I, uh, <laughs> st drunk studying the big books like studying theory on the ripcord when you're falling at 10,000 feet. You know, it's like, well, what if I don't believe it'll work? Or what's the definition of pull the ripcord? Or, you know, pull the cord, pull the cord. And, uh, and I, like a lot of alcoholics, followed the path, and then I studied it and found out that a lot of things in here never happened. But that's a talk for another day. And then I went back to following the path again. And the part that Ron read on page 164, uh, that's one of my favorite parts, really. And it's talking about the road of happy destiny. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. And you know what alcoholics do with that? I looked up the word trudge. Oh, really? What did it say? Walk with purpose. I said, that's good, kid. But I've never any heard anybody said, where's the road? It's on the inside. It's not in Minot, North Dakota, or Tempe, Arizona. The world of the Spirit, the sunlight of the Spirit, the fourth dimension, the fellowship of the Spirit, it's on the inside. What we have to share is from the inside out. It's not from the outside in. And what you share with me is God's grace. Every time I'm with you, I get a different perspective on my life and who I am and who you are. I don't know if you realize this or not, but it's no accident you're sitting next to the people you're sitting next to. You think God doesn't know what he's doing? I think we're sitting next to the people that spiritually nourish us on an energetic level long, long down belief, what's trudge mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, and I know I've been here and I know my life's better because I've met you this weekend. And I love the theme of the convention. The age of miracles is still with us. I don't know if you know this or not, but we are the miracle. Ladies and gentlemen, we are the miracle. And I just want to thank you for everything you've done for me in my life. Thank you. <laughs>